Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Award season continues here at Below the Line, and our jam, as regular listeners know, is film industry professionals discussing the Oscar nominees in their category of expertise. This is the fourth of 12 planned episodes, and today we're talking about production design. My guests I'm happy to share are a couple of Oscar nominees themselves. First, returning to the show is set decorator Regina Graves. Regina, your credits include The Gilded Age, The Nick, and The Irishman, for which you received your Oscar nomination. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. And making his below-the-line debut is production designer Bob Shaw. Bob, your credits include Boardwalk Empire, The Wolf of Wall Street, and also The Irishman, the film for which both you and Regina were nominated. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you both here. A quick note for listeners, if you go to imdb.com and search for Below the Line, you'll find every episode of the podcast with a list of my guests. And a click on their names will take you straight to their credits. Okay, the five 2023 films nominated for production design are Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, Napoleon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this awarding. One last reminder before we get started, we like to recognize our below-the-line compatriots by name, even if it means I'm occasionally mispronouncing some of them. Of course, Bob and Regina, you're welcome to correct me. Either way, apologies in advance to the nominees. First up for production design, Barbie. Production designer, Sarah Greenwood, and set decorator, Katie Spencer. Start us off. What do you guys think of Barbie? What's fascinating was... uh... That team is known for doing very, very accurate period, uh, uh, very detailed uh, historical films. So I'm sure it was very exciting for them to have to create this completely different fantasy toy world. And uh, not the designer you would have thought, but I think it was really a pretty uh, spectacular job. Yeah. And to go with what Bob was saying, I was just watching um, a little interview between the two of them. And they were saying that, um, you know, they do mostly like these big historic films, but they did so much research for Barbie and to get into the whole world of Barbie. And neither one of them were like Barbie, you know, uh, enthusiasts. None of like neither one of them grew up playing with them. Um, so they said like this, believe it or not, like this, this show was just as hard as doing something like um, Anna Karenina. Um, but it was really interesting, you know, watching them too and them discussing it and and going over like all the different shades of pink that they tried out and and you know getting into Barbie's whole world and doing like these mock um uh models and and how Barbie's like a uh, dream house didn't have any walls and like the scale of it all and how they had to build everything in like different scales to fit how a Barbie doll would fit into the house um so a lot of that was really interesting and a lot of detail that I really took for granted because it's a contemporary film, you know, thinking that you think sometimes that a contemporary film is much easier, but watching them and, and like reading about what they put into it just shows you how much goes into it. Cause everything that they used or they, you know, was basically built for the sets, bringing that whole Barbie world to life. I mean, I grew up playing with Barbies and it was just, um, it was fascinating to see it all come to life like that and feel like you're actually in it, like in Barbie's world. 
something I think that's really interesting just about the list of nominees this year is you have two Barbie and poor things which are not tethered to reality and aren't tethered to history and don't involve uh, audience expectation of this doesn't look like Los Alamos or, or this doesn't look like, you know, France at the time of the, of the revolution or post-revolution. And, um, you know, and then you have two that are, that are just unhinged, uh, which is very exciting for a designer to, you know, it's fun to do the research, but it's, it's fun to occasionally get to make stuff up and, um, they had to do an awful lot of special makes on, on uh, you know, the furniture and, and props and a lot of, a lot of custom made work there. Yeah. And I think it all worked. It looked beautiful. Everything that they built for it, it really worked because it did bring the viewer into Barbie's dreamland. And that's where you wanted to be. It brought you into that space. You felt like you were a doll in this world. So Barbie land is getting a lot of attention and rightfully so. Um, and really carrying a lot of the conversation about this film. But talk to me about what you noticed or your thoughts on the difficulty or challenges of the real world. Well, I think it remained a certain level of stylization, but the interesting thing was uh, the contemporary seems to me, seemed it was about the contrast of, of Barbie and Ken coming through another world and looking like they completely didn't belong. I heard Margot Robbie saying that one of the days when they filmed them walking on the regular street, she said she just felt like, completely embarrassed because she said she looked so strange she was used to wearing wearing that outfit and and uh and, and looking like a doll in in the in the doll world and she felt a little little self-conscious um doing that in the real world an interesting thing to me is that um i think in a way the most stylized thing was the road that um between barbie land and and the real world and that had a whole different feeling to it. And uh, it, it that almost felt like kind of a cartoon world. It, it almost reminded me of like the Roadrunner. <laughs> and um, and it, it had less of a reality than um, the individual reality that they created for Barbie Land versus the reality of the real world. But the transition uh, felt like it was a, a whole different style to me. And I, I think probably it's it was just so vast, you know. Because even with Barbie, uh, I think when you, we've, we've watched all the behind the scenes uh, tours and and the making of and um, you can assume these days that there's a lot more stuff that's created with visual effects and um, and they built a lot more than than uh, than you would think at first. But the, uh, the the road that connects the two worlds is completely fabricated, it seems. And they also had um, I've read like an 800 foot plus uh, painted backdrop for a lot, you know, for like their scenery and stuff. So yeah, like you, said, some of it wasn't visual effects. You mentioned um, some of the behind the scenes stuff. I know some of the categories, when they publish their shortlist, those folks are given the opportunity to do like a bake-off where they share some of these details. Is that afforded to production design as well? Or is it more that folks just have to get their message out there about the work that they did? I think it's, uh, they they do that for for some of the uh the areas that are harder for uh, a regular audience member to, to 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 realize what's involved certainly sound you know people have no idea what what challenges create are created uh, in the sound world and um it's a little bit the same with um with with hair and makeup i mean people get an overall sense of it but they, they don't necessarily realize what's 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 involved you know you don't look at something and say i bet they sat in the chair for six hours <laughs> and <laughs> But that's often what you find out in these things, but particularly something like sound and, and editing. 
you know, uh, it, it'd be very hard for like the average person. It's even hard for me sometimes to figure out, you know, why something is, was more of a challenge for the editors. And visual effects is another one of those categories, but we'll come back to it when we're through our films. Let's move on to our second film, Killers of the Flower Moon, production design by Jack Fisk and set decoration by Adam Willis. I'm going to be a little biased because I'm a huge fan of, of obviously Marty's movies and a really big fan of Jack Fisk. And I had the opportunity to um, interview him or, or have like a little talk with he and Adam about the film. Um, what I love about Killers is that, again, it's based on a true story. So a lot of it you know, is based on facts and it's kind of like not a documentary, but they're, re, you know, re, reliving certain pieces. But um, what I love about this is how they built a lot of like these outbuildings and, you know, just like, I don't know, the history of it all in that time period. And it's it's probably like that's like a, a film that I would love to work on. And I'm, I was really like taken by all of the sets and how beautifully, you know, I just felt like I was in it and you just brought me back to a place. Um, I thought all their choices were, you know, top notch without being like, you know, exceptionally beautiful or what have you. I just I just feel like everything was real. And again, like talking with Adam and Jack and how they worked with each other really gave me an appreciation for the both of them even more, more so, and, and how they like just kind of delved into it and really loved. And you could just tell that everything that every all the choices that were made were just really thought about. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to say other than I think it's a great looking film and it was rightfully so nominated. I think they did a great job of putting you in the time and place. Yeah. And I, I know from working with Scorsese that he often wants Sometimes he'll say something shouldn't draw attention to itself, or, or he once told me something should look like nothing. <laughs> and I think he's trying to set the world, but not in a not in a flashy way, not in an ostentatious way. And so it's not like, oh wow, that was an eye popping set, or oh that was so gorgeous. But mm -hmm. it totally creates the environment and and creates a different time. And it also uh, is an area that's uh, sort of been underserved in. Um, in being depicted on film. I, I love the film itself because it's, it's one of those things where you say, did that really happen? And, uh, you know, bringing, bringing, you know, uh, a historical moment to life that had been sort of under discussed without, um, I have a tendency to, to look at pieces of furniture or, or, or fabrics or draperies and, and say, it needs to sit back and behave itself. And um, this was that kind of film. I mean, if you really start analyzing frame by frame, you start seeing the details, you start seeing the Native American fabrics, you, you know, you, you see all of that stuff, but, but it's not in your face and it's, it's, it's very subtle. And I think it, I'm happy that it was recognized because often a subtlety isn't recognized. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how I felt, but you said it in much better words than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but, uh, uh, we're we're both we're both very, very prejudiced towards Scorsese. Yeah, but I um, just just something about that film. I really think it's probably uh, my favorite Scorsese film ever. I, you know, even over Goodfellas, which that's hard to be. But um, yeah, I just think the film in a whole is just I just yeah beautiful to look at. But like I said, it's it's and like you said, it it just sits back and relax. It's not like anything is in your face. It was just done very well. It told it told the story. 
not taking away from the movie itself. I think it was a couple of months ago, I read an article in the New York Times where the reporter was had interviewed uh, Jack Fisk and some of the work that went into this. And uh, I was struck by decisions like putting the barbershop in the pool hall, or again, if I'm getting this, but these ideas yeah. that were meant to subtly, as you say, but to tie in the story in ways and the open streets and just how it all fit together. Um, and so I had a sense of all the work that went into this as well uh, from that article. There was an interesting thing in the article, though, that, and I don't know if anyone read it, but it had a tone as if what Jack Fisk was doing was really more than what production designers do in general. But having talked to so many of you, I got a sense that while his work is exemplary, not to take anything away from it, that is the effort of production design on any production, small or large. And I was curious whether you're going to tell me, no, this really is next level, unprecedented sort of work that normally you're not afforded that opportunity, or if indeed, yes, it's exemplary, but everyone aspires to do that on, on their project, large or small. I think doing the research and doing the homework actually is one of the most uh, satisfying parts parts of the job and uh, getting to the point where you really know the material and you know um, this chair wouldn't be there this this vase wouldn't be there the, you know these these people wouldn't have a vase or or whatever um, uh, there's a lot of um, kind of almost archaeology anthropology whatever you, some kind of ology involved that that you really have to study the material and that's um one of the great satisfactions of the job and one time you're you could be you know researching los alamos another thing you could be re researching this world where um you know the, the white people are are meeting you know colliding in the, in the same world as the native americans and um and uh, you have you have to do the research to make to get it to feel real i don't have anything to say about the particular amount of research they did but um uh, it's it's really one of the big parts of the job, if, if, particularly if you do things that are period. It's interesting because ma many years ago, I worked as the art director on on the ice storm, um, and you know it was set in on the east coast of of uh, the U.S. in in the seventies. And I started. It's like, well, I know this. I was alive, at, you know. And the director Ang Lee was um, was not from this culture, and so things that he would notice that we didn't notice because. Um, because uh, we th we thought we knew it, and you, you find that you even have to do research on a period that you you lived in, because you would say, "Wait a minute, did that tape recorder exist? Did I get that in seventh grade, or did I get that when I was in high school?" And I, I learned through that show that you even have to research, you know, fairly recent periods, because you can't trust you can't trust your your memory, or you can't trust your sense of it. And then remember, they gave us a, a book of like a Xerox book of uh, research that was the size of a phone book. And I thought initially, like, well, I don't need this. And then I was constantly referring to it. Well, it occurs to me, and because you've both worked with Scorsese before, that he allows and budgets for and gives the time to do the kind of research you're talking about. Not every production affords or affords the production designer to do the amount of work that it has. Or is that more common than, than maybe I would guess? Well, Scorsese also has this brilliant researcher named Marianne Bauer, who I think is one of the, also one of the producers on the film. Been with him for years and years, and um, it's a different level of research than than we often do. Um, 
you know, there's a difference between really being a researcher and being a Googler. And um, when people Google research, happens all the time. You have a well-intentioned person in the art department who's doing research and they'll, they'll show you 10 images and you'll say six of them are from movies. And um, <laughs> it, that happens all the time that you have to be careful not to, you know, get research that's from a movie. Because um, then there are certain things that have been seen in movies so many times, people think that um, that, that was a, a bit of reality. And it's like, no, it's just a location that got used a lot. <laughs> Real in-depth research is is a is a very very specific field, and a lot of people to a different level of it. Let's take that challenge into the third film on our list, another period drama, Napoleon. Production designer Arthur Max, set decorator Ellie Griff. Well, as as happens sometimes, I I was actually more engaged by the design than by the film. Um, and uh, that was one that, you know, is an occupational hazard, I guess, with what we do, of scrutinizing it and trying to figure out what were set extensions and what were real. And, you know, before before you do period films, um, you think, oh, well, you get a bunch of old houses and you go in them and you film. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the, the scale of that film was just immense. I mean, it, yeah. it, it uh, I say all the time, again, that when you when you're charged with doing a certain film even if it's big even if it's ambitious you um you you start breaking things down and you figure out how am i going to do this um to me a sign is something that i think is like a nominated film was like i look at it and go how did they do that and it, i'm always looking at other people's work and 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 thinking how did they do that and um i know for for um I myself and certainly I, I imagine Regina feels the same way when we look at it and we're just a little baffled as how they did it um that uh it's uh definitely puts it in a certain class when we're, we're kind of amazed by it don't you think Regina definitely but like you I I watched the movie but just kind of just tried to watch the sets because the movie itself wasn't my favorite um but again, I think this is a case where a lot of people would think, oh, what's so great about this film? They probably shot them all on location in these big, you know, historic mansions or what have you. Um, but I was reading that they filmed most of it in London or like in England, not France. Um, and one of the main houses was, um, I don't know what it's called, but it's like the Versailles of, of England or something like that. But what a lot of people don't know, Bob and I have experienced you know, filming in some of these big grand locations, you you can, you don't just walk in and, and film as is a lot of it. You have to like the majority, you have to take all this stuff out. Yes. It's a great backdrop, the walls, everything, the architecture is there, but you can't just walk in and use like all their furnishings. You can't sit on these chairs from, you know, the 1600s. I mean, everything basically gets taken out and we're redressing this whole set. Right. Like it's a stage set. So, so much work goes into it, but um, it's really ironic yeah and the sheer the vastness of it all yeah of, of like, all these sets were just um you know like you like said i sit there and go oh my god how they do all that especially the battle scenes with all those tents it's just like it blows me away but again i think it's a beautiful film it's one of the things we learned i think even more from doing uh working on gilded age and looking at the period films and go into a historic place and say oh it's just perfect and you basically have to empty the room out the whole yeah 
Yeah, and you you can't have someone sitting on a fabric that might be the original hundred and some year old fabric. Mm-hmm. That's something an audience would never know. You know, you just show up. They just don't. You don't. They don't charge you the admission, and you go in and you film. <laughs> <laughs> So it's daunting. I mean, because every one of those rooms had to be refurnished and redecorated. And and like I said, not even the rooms. I mean, the, the battle scenes, I just don't even know where to begin on the tents and this all, all of that stuff. But um, again, it was a huge epic thing. Shots were so deep. I mean, the background just went on and on forever. Mm-hmm. And that gets to where, you know, that's when you figure, well, there must be some extensions involved here because they, you just don't find you know, blocks and blocks or, or, or a mile or the volume. An extension for folks who don't know, Bob, you're talking about like where the visual effects will come in and make it larger or more of a vista or just the aspects of the building or the tents, as Regina's mentioned, that weren't actually set up but are added later. Right, right. You, could, you might build a facade of a building or a facade of two buildings, but you need to look down the street and then, you know, the, the buildings that you uh, have built are just the the launching point and then they have to extend it and add, you know, the rest of the block. And, um, you know, there's certain guidelines that get complicated that you have to figure out. Um, they usually want something real behind the actor. It's, 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 it's a complicated formula of figuring out what to build and what to, what to hand to VFX. But you can't actually decide on the day. It has to be decided well in advance. <laughs> if any of us going to be ready for filming. You know, although it's surprising, the number of times it happens on any film where you've all done all your planning and you're going to see this side of the street and the shot's going to be this and the shot's going to be that. And then, you know, something happens on the day and um, they say, well, uh, okay, we're going to look in this direction instead. So can you throw a green screen behind these <laughs> four people in the scene and figure it out later? And um, I know that uh, the, the visual effects people are like, I, I don't have this in my budget. Or I, we weren't prepared to do this. And um, it's, it's surprising that, how often that things don't stick to plan. And, um, you know, when people kind of get upset in the art department, I said, you know what, you're going to tell somebody you had a better idea last night, but you're not allowed to use it because you, of what you told us two weeks ago. You know, even in a big, meticulously planned um, film, they have to allow for some things that happen in the moment. Regina, you also mentioned on the set decoration side, going into these historic buildings, need to remove the furniture. Does that mean that there's a lot of fabrication or is there a market of furniture for film sets that looks like it's centuries old? Well, it really depends. Um, it depends. Like New York City, unfortunately, doesn't have a huge market for period furnishings. I mean, we do. We have like one prop house, two prop houses, but Sometimes we don't want to use that because so many people have. Um, so it really depends where they are. I'm sure. I, I mean, I read that the decorator, Ellie, on this film um, rented from a lot of prop houses in England. I'm assuming that in Europe, maybe these prop houses are big and fast. Um, sometimes we do have to go out and fabricate things or we find the furniture, the old furniture, and have to have it refinished and reupholstered. So it really just depends like where you are you know, as far as like um, in the world and what's available to you. I mean, ideally you have the time and the resources to yeah. reupholster things and refinish things because otherwise, you know, if, if you were only relying on what you were getting from the from the rental house, you would sort of lose control of the palette and, and the tone. You know, it, it's hard to maintain, you know, the, the look that, that everyone has agreed upon 
when you're renting a lot of things. And sometimes they say, oh, you can't reupholster that. And then we have to look somewhere else because it doesn't fit into the color scheme. So they had to contend with all of that on a massive, massive scale. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to find things myself and have it reupholstered and just make it our own. But sometimes you also don't have the time to do that. It really just depends the timing, what's available to you and all those different circumstances. And if it's a, well, when you're working on a TV show, it's different because you have things that are made for like permanent sets that have to be there forever. Well, moving on to the fourth film on our list, Oppenheimer. Production designer Ruth DeYoung and set decorator Claire Kaufman. Well, um, it, this was pretty meticulously um, researched as well. I happened to have worked on a project that um, I didn't actually complete that was going to be the Manhattan Project. So I had at one point done the research on this is what the entrance looked like. This is what the uh, the gathering place they looked was and and uh, you know trying to figure out you know which things they built obviously they built the entrance to whatnot and uh, you know so it was all it was all very very spot on accurate. The only comment I had at all was that um, it, a lot of it looked a little new to me uh, like the entrance to uh, to the Los Alamos project there um, looked looked pretty uh, new. You could argue that they had recently constructed it, but you know you're in the desert and there's an awful lot of dust and things flying around. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's also hard to um, aging things and making things live look lived in is is tough because there's a fine line between um, getting something that's realistic and then accidentally slipping into a horror film. I mean, it, it happens all the time. I mean, there's a, you, you can't see the aging, you can't see the aging, you can't see it. And then suddenly the next step, it's too much. Uh, so it's, it's one of the subtleties of, of, uh, of design. And, uh, and it's, it's one of the, the, the trickiest things to get right. Yeah. I feel like, again, this was um, another one of my favorites. Um, I do agree with you on like the aging of things, but what I did take away from a lot of it was it seemed to me like the sets weren't chock full of stuff. I felt like things were really scaled back. Um, they weren't as layered as like a lot of period films are. And I think that was maybe done intentionally because it, it kind of brought other things like to life, like the atom bomb or like things in the research lab. Um, well, there's also the aspect that there's, there's the aspect that, um, they were assigned or, or, or recruited to go work on this project at Los Alamos and bring and bring their families and try and create the sense of a community. But they obviously didn't bring everything they owned and they also didn't know how long they were going to be there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I don't know that someone would have decamped to, uh, to Los Alamos and brought, you know, grandmothers, this and that. Yeah. You know? So I think I think it was, um, you know, temporary housing. So I think it's kind of appropriate that it wasn't overly layered. Definitely. And that's what I'm saying. I think it was done like intentionally. And, and um, I also read that about this show I, that I couldn't believe it, that they shot it in like 57 days, you know, and they had over 150 or something sets. So that's a really, you know, 150 or plus sets in 57 days. And it, it didn't have this huge budget like people thought they did. Um, so I think that's a feat in itself, like just trying to catch up with all of that, you know, but there are things of, again with the, like the set dressing, how I'm saying like less is more, but it worked for them. You know how like, you know, we do a set and when there's blank walls, everyone always says, oh my God, there's a blank wall. There has to be something on the wall. Like I felt like with Oppenheimer, there, there wasn't a lot of artwork. There, there wasn't like 
tons of things on the walls and it and it worked that's that's something that's that's frustrating for what what we do because um there's a, a pitfall can be that people are are composing for every frame they're not composing for the room so if you've done a certain amount in, in a given room and then one one side doesn't have as much on the wall or maybe doesn't have anything on the wall and and a, a lot of people are, are afraid to let to let um any frame go kind of uncomposed mm-hmm. again it's, it's it's tricky because uh the same thing the difference between uh unmotivated pieces of dressing hanging on the wall and and then overly stark it's it's, it's hard to get to hard to get that right uh, which i think they did and um it, it's the same thing with the aging you know there, there's a, a very fine line between uh not enough and too much or mm-hmm. or, or not being realistic you know, it happens all the time that someone says is there anything to put in frame and you know and you can watch the dailies and go like, who put that there? <laughs> it happens all the time. Definitely. It's, it's tricky. It's tricky. But again, I think you can compare this to like Killers of the Flower Moon. And again, a film like this, because it's not like, it's a, it's a big period piece, but it's not like this big, gorgeous deco, you know, kind of movie or something, but it was still recognized for all of its work and for what it brought to the screen it's creating a world again, you know, mm-hmm. a time, a time and a place and, and an environment. And uh, it was very successful at doing that. I agree. Well, the fifth film on our list is creating a fantastical world and that's poor things production designed by James Price and Shauna Heath set decoration by Suja Mia. And this is where you're supposed to tell me if I pronounce those wrong and you know it. And we don't know. So, it sounded good to me. <laughs> This is another one where uh, it's such a fantastical world that uh, we looked at it a lot. And it's like, what what did they build and what did, what was an enhancement? And um, I was kind of astonished to see how much they built. I mean, that whole Parisian square, that, that you know, the whole scientist's house, all of that. And um, and again, it's uh, it's, it's probably ex- both exciting and, and daunting to make so much up from scratch because... Um, it was kind of um, like wacky Paris. I mean, it was all it was all uh, reconceived. It was all um, heightened, and uh, I mean, I have to say, it, 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 certain parts of it um, made me a little queasy because it's so it's it's so it's sort of so. Um, it, it, it to me, it's, it can be a very dark vision and can be very kind of unsettling, and and so to a certain extent, you know, some of some of the looks you know, made me a little uncomfortable. And I, I think, again, that's probably part of the intention. Um, but it, it was very, it was very intense, like a lot of incense or something. But uh, they built a lot. They did build a lot. Yeah. From from a decorator standpoint, I have to say, this was like eye candy for me. I was just so taken with, oh my God, like the quilting on the walls and all every little detail and yeah. The, the the you know in her bedroom that was like I was like is it carpeting is it padded it's tufted what is that um you know everything was kind of like Bob said heightened and and either things were really uh like large scale like the chairs in the in in like the kitchen where they sat and all the plates on the walls you know from the ship with the kind of art deco and it was just you know everything 
it felt like they just had a freedom with this to do whatever they wanted with it, to decorate however they want, design however they want with it. And it just looked like a really fun, I'm saying as an outsider, film to work on. Um, I thought it was fantastic looking. It was like something you, you know, didn't really see before. I love the movie itself because it was so out there. Um, and like Bob said, so many sets were built because I always like look that up. What did they build? What didn't they build? Where were they? And um, I don't know. I just thought it was a lot of eye candy and and something that was really exciting and new to me. Well, it's got an Alice in Wonderland kind of quality yeah. to it in that you're, you're definitely even in a different dimension, this is a different, this is, this is some kind of alt, alt, alternative universe or something. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was, it was very uh, consistently uh, designed for, for the, uh, the aesthetic, the look that they established. And, um, you know, once you, when you're doing something like that, you have to sort of make your own, your own, uh, your own rules, you know, so that in order to keep things consistent. Because even though uh, there's a lot of fantastical things and a lot of invention, you have to make it look like it was invented as part of the same world and by the same people. Mm -hmm. And and so it it had a very consistent look. I mean, I, honestly, it, it was it was one of my favorites, even though I definitely found it, found it unsettling <laughs> at times. You know, you know, I I can be a little a little conventional, and uh, the the objective isn't always pretty, you know. The objective can be unsettling. The objective can be creepy. The you know, the uh, objective can be to make it clear that this is a, a whole other world that you've never seen before. Yeah, and that's what I think I liked about it the most. It was just something that I haven't really seen on screen before. And in this is a case where the production design and the sort of where it's difficult or disorienting clearly serves the story since that seems to be the point of the story overall. And it's, it's, it's rowing in the same direction without a doubt. Well, you know, sometimes when something's creepy, you both love it and you don't love it. I mean, like when I was a kid, I loved watching the wizard of Oz, but there were certain parts that where I always closed my eyes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it has that kind of, yeah. I, I thought about like the wizard of Oz in a different way or, or like Willy Wonka in a different way. It kind of reminded me, you know, just kind of like out yeah, there. Yeah. But this was a little, further out there but i thought it looked fantastic definitely through the looking glass yeah <laughs> there's a lot of great films this year i don't know it's a hard one and yeah. they're all so different yeah. you know different same you know not and how do you like choose one over the other it's just really it's hard there's almost like two different camps you know there's the sort of fantasy side and then there's the uh you know the the, the historical side and even within the historical side, you have the the flamboyance of uh, Napoleon versus the uh, Napoleon, the very real, very um, unobtrusive uh, design of uh, Killers of the Flower Moon and um, and Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. Be curious to see which way it goes. Well, fortunately, we're not going to put you on the spot to pick winners on this show. However, <sighs> I am going to ask. <laughs> What other films in 2023 would you have liked to have seen nominated for achievement in production design? In other words, what films are maybe overlooked, not on this list? You don't need to say which of these you would drop off, but what else caught your attention that we want to shine a light on? Well, I think Regina just mentioned Wonka. That was very yeah. designed. Yeah, I wouldn't drop any off the list because I think everyone on this list is, is deserving. Um, but Wonka, you know, if maybe they if they had like seven choices instead of five, I think Wonka. Um, 
you know, that was really something. And Asteroid City, the movie itself wasn't so, wasn't recognized, but I always think like his movies just always have that certain look. And I don't think there was ever um, a Wes Anderson film that didn't look, you know, a hundred percent that didn't, you know, have like that certain look. Um, I mean, Maestro's Impossibility, um, because that that's another one where um, it was, uh, you know, very reality-based and, um, you know, creating the world they lived in, but it wasn't, you know, like dazzling, you know. Yeah, it wasn't in your face. But I thought that that was a very, very uh, well-designed show that probably would have grabbed a nomination in a different year. Mm -hmm. That's the, always the interesting thing about the Oscars is that there are, there, there are shows, there are performances that you assume were Oscar winners, and then you find out, no, they weren't even nominated. It was a big year. <laughs> and, um, you know, all the time, you know, when you really look at the history of, of the Oscars, there are things that you assume would have been winners that weren't nominated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this year, it's a really good year for film. I feel like we're yeah. back. Like, you know, in, in the past couple of years, it's been like, eh, so-so. This year, it's been, you know, pretty exciting to watch them all i am hearing that on a lot of our episodes there is one yeah. thing from another episode that i want to put before the two of you the one before this three days ago we were focused on visual effects and there were three films that my visual effects guests thought were overlooked in their category and that was oppenheimer barbie and poor things now all three of those show up on this list and we talked a little bit about the interaction between visual effects, production designers, visual effects is doing more and more. Is a lot of that work properly placed under production design as maybe it was with these films? Or is that relationship just getting more complicated? And what do you guys foresee for the future? I think it's changed a lot in the last 10 or 12 years. And uh, projects that I personally worked on like 12 years ago, um, we finished and wrapped and like, like on Boardwalk Empire and then gave them some research and some pencil drawings and then just saw what they did. And, um, you know, now there are a lot more people doing 3D work in the art department. And so I think we're able to, you know, before we're all sent home at the end <laughs> when we wrap, um, you know, give a, a much more fleshed out uh, version of what we of what we think, you know, the, re the, the rest looks like. And then it's going to continue to change because, um, I haven't really worked on it, but Regina's had the experience of working on a show that was using the volume stage, mm -hmm. you know, where, uh, where they, you know, build certain set pieces, but for the most part, everything is on, you know, this wraparound um, LED screen or giant LED screen, whatever it is. And that changes the formula where all of the, a lot of the work has to be done up front because um, the idea is that there's a, a, whatever projected behind them has to have already been done and, and figured out in in, in pre-production so that's kind of changing the ball game you know as it gets to be used more and more which i think it will be um of wrapping the job and then having these people just sort of make up the rest on their own um it, it's going to skew things back toward toward uh, pre-production don't you think i think so i'm pretty i'm surprised that uh, barbie wasn't nominated for visual visual effects i am too it's such a clear it's such a clear uh or even poor things blend poor things really it's it, it, they both surprised me uh because they uh they leave us 
guessing like where 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 the reality begins and ends and and how much was extended and and I think clearly things were there was a lot there were a lot of visual effects employed and um and the idea that uh that they were nominated is a little surprising mm-hmm. I mean Oppenheimer you know again uh that's when the, where that looks so real that it's, it's it's even hard for us to really tell yeah so you you know I assume that the visual effects experts are are certainly better informed than we are. Are there five nominees like every other category for visual effects? Yes. And what were they? And so the visual effects films were Napoleon. It was on both lists, but after that they had the Creator, Godzilla minus one, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, and the Mission Impossible film. Well, you know that's interesting because you know in 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 the lead up to to the Oscars, uh, you know because we're supposed to work on nominations in our in the categories, you know I I always make sure to watch the movies that aren't necessarily things that I would go to see in a theater because I'm pretty far away from being a teenager, um, but you know Guardians of the Galaxy, you know you look at that show and you can see certain things that you're pretty sure they built, but then there's just so much. I mean, it's that there's just so much invention, so much visual visual effects. I mean, uh, I mean, as much as there are in 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 uh, in, in Barbie or in uh, or things. I mean, there were entire worlds they had to create. I think there's probably more instances where people were probably on a blank stage with everything else mm-hmm. being put in after the fact, and maybe that's something that you know visual effects people are a little more attuned to. Bob, you reminded me that last year um, Avatar Way of Water was nominated for production design uh, with the idea of it being that visual, all of it has to be designed from scratch, which can be harder in some ways. It's just, I mean, that's another one where I look at those films and, you know, as a production designer, um, even figuring out what you're supposed to do and what somebody else is supposed to do is um, daunting. I mean, it's, uh, and there's a little bit of thing as a designer, you you tend to want to you tend to want to build more or, or make more because I don't know whether it's a control issue or, or an ego issue, <laughs> but um, you, you don't want to put more of a stamp on it. Well, I very much appreciate you guys sharing your insights about these films. On that note, we're going to call it a wrap. Great having you guys here. Okie doke. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Listeners. I always appreciate your feedback. You can find my contact info on our website, Below the line, one word dot biz. That's B I Z. I hope you're enjoying our Oscar coverage and please subscribe to the podcast if you're not doing so already. We'll be back again with another episode in three days. My closing credits thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.